And turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 3, 4, and 5. Believe it or not, I'm going to try to preach on all three. So we better pray. <clears throat> oh, Father, we want to hear from you this morning. We ask that you would speak your word by your Holy Spirit and that you would speak it to each of our hearts and minds and that we would be changed by your word, that a seed would be planted that would grow up and produce fruit. Only by your spirit can this happen. So send your spirit and power, we pray. Amen. Last week in his sermon, Pastor Chris suggested that the first two Psalms stand like a gateway into the whole collection of the Psalms. I mean, enter here, they say. Come this way. This is, this is the way to enter the Psalms and through the Psalms to enter life with God. And so Psalm 1 declares, put your roots down deep into the rich soil of God's Word. I mean, meditate on it. Delight in it. Grow strong and tall like a mighty tree by abiding in God's Word. And then Psalm 2 invites us, actually, if you read it, it warns us to bow down before God's Messiah, to, to kiss the kingly ring of God's eternal Son, and to serve Him with reverence and awe, to, to wait in eager expectation for, for the coming of His kingdom and for His will to be done. So in effect, the, the words you can imagine written on, on the twin pillars of the gateway into the Psalms are these. Abide in my word and seek first my kingdom. And then on the archway that is built between these two pillars, I would write life with God or encountering the living God. Because that's what the Psalms are all about. And when you go through this gateway, into this house of prayer, this, this hymn book called the Psalms, which has shaped the life of the people of God down through the ages, what do you encounter? I mean, what are, what are the first Psalms that, that we learn to sing or to recite in prayer? Because just like the two gateway psalms, these first psalms are given a place of prominence. That they've been chosen from among all the rest to be the first. And their position, I believe, is revealing. But what does it reveal? See, that's the question I want to answer this morning. And perhaps when the psalms were read, you notice that these three psalms, Psalm 3, 4, and 5, are called Psalms of David. That's what some editor or editors have written on the prescript that goes before these psalms. Now, now the truth is we don't know for sure if these psalms were actually written by David. This is the work of an editor. That There's no signature. There's no clear evidence. But, but it could be the case 
And it's what the church has believed down through the ages. And it, it might help explain why these psalms were put first in the collection. So, so let me ask you, when you think of David, what, what comes to your mind? I mean, do, do you think of that, that, that young giant killer who became one of Israel's greatest king? Do, do, you, do you think of the fact that God himself called David a man after his own heart? Well, I've, um, I've read through this, the story of David recently. And you know what struck me? It was how much David suffered in his life. Or as Psalm 134 puts it, all the hardships David endured. I mean, you, you know the story. Early on in David's life, he, he suffered much at the hands of Saul. He, he was forced to, to wander for years in the wilderness of Israel, hiding from Saul's spies and from Saul's army and in caves and holes in the ground. He, he lived with his men from hand to mouth. He, he was an outlaw to his own people. And his beautiful young wife was taken from him and given to another man. And eventually things got so bad that David had to flee to the Philistines, the enemies of Israel, at feigning madness to save his own skin. And those are just the struggles recorded in 1 Samuel. In 2 Samuel, we read about David's battle to establish his kingdom after the death of Saul and the death of his beloved friend Jonathan. And after a few short chapters about God's blessing upon David's life, we descend into a narrative of one sad tale after another. I mean, we read about David's sin with Bathsheba and all the heartache and suffering that that led to. And we read about David's firstborn son, Amnon, who raped his half-sister, Tamar. And then how Absalom, Tamar's brother, murdered Amnon in revenge. And then finally, we read about the treachery of Absalom as he tries to take the kingdom away from his father. I mean, chapter 15 and 16 of 2 Samuel tells that sad story. You see, the northern tribes had declared Absalom king. And so David decided to flee the city before Absalom came and besieged it. And as he walks out of the gates through the Kidron Valley and up over the Mount of Olives, David is barefoot. And he's wearing a sackcloth over his head, covering it in shame. And as he walks, he's weeping. And the people of the city come out to watch him, and many of them are weeping. And as, as David and his company descends the Mount of Olives, a, a man named Shammai comes out of his house. And he starts hurling insults at David and calling down God's curses upon him. And David's men, they want to take their spears and run Shammai through, which they could have easily done. But David says, no, leave them alone. Perhaps this is what God wants. So David, he flees the city and Absalom enters it amidst the shout of the fickle people as, as they declare him king. And then Absalom decides he's going to send the army out to defeat David and his men, to destroy David. Only he waits just a little bit 
too long. And as a result, David's men are able to regroup. And when Absalom's armies come out, David's men defeat them. And Absalom himself, he gets his hair caught in a tree and his animal goes on and there he is hanging. And Joab, the commander of David's army, sends three javelins through Absalom's heart. And when David hears this sad news, he sends up to heaven one of the most heart-rending cries in all of Scripture. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And the words written above Psalm 3 are a psalm of David when he fled from his son, Absalom. See, at the, at the darkest moment of David's life, when his own flesh and blood had turned against him and made him flee Jerusalem in disgrace, at that darkest moment when David is actually forced to participate in the death of his own son, these are the words he wrote. And these words, this psalm, he is chosen to be the first psalm after we walk through the gateway of Psalm 1 and 2. And the next few psalms are very much like it, also psalms of David. And in these psalms, we learn something supremely important about prayer. Prayer, in its most basic form, Prayer, pared down to its essential elements, it is a human being crying out to God in the midst of trouble and pain. David Dorsey, you don't probably know him, but he was a beloved Old Testament professor at Evangelical Seminary in central Pennsylvania, where Cindy and I lived for 25 years. And he was known for many things, but one of the things he was known for was asking his new students to summarize the book of Psalms in a phrase or a few words, I mean, all 150 of them. And some brave students would try to give an answer, and after they'd given their different answers, Dr. Dorsey would surprise them with his own. Help. Help. The Psalms are a cry for help, an urgent, heartfelt, often confused and pain-filled cry for help. I mean, Psalm 3, O Lord, how many are my foes, how many rise up against me, how many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. Psalm 4, answer me when I call you. Give me relief in distress. Psalm 5. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Listen to my cry for help. And, and this is just the beginning. I mean, it goes on and on. Psalm 6 and 7. Psalm 10, 11, 12, 13. See, the cry for help reverberates throughout the Psalms. The only cry that even begins to approach it in frequency and intensity is the cry, hallelujah, praise the Lord. 
And I would suggest to you that help and hallelujah are the warp and woof of the fabric of the Psalms. Why? Because they're meant to be the lifeblood of our communion with God. See, the Psalms begin with a cry for help in the midst of very real pain because prayer, real prayer, honest prayer, usually begins in trouble. I only pray when I'm in trouble, a man once said. But, but then he added, I'm in trouble all the time. <laughs> so I always pray. You know, perhaps the reason we fail to pray all the time is we don't see the trouble we're in. We don't see how frail and fragile we really are. We don't see how often we hang the heavy weights of our lives on very thin wires. Wires that could break at any moment. I mean, wires like health and wealth and career success. And we don't see how powerful he is the enemy of our souls or how evil his intentions. We don't see how deeply embedded his deceptions are in the ways of this world or how our minds and hearts or the minds and hearts of our children are being shaped by them. We don't, we don't see the, the corruption in our own souls. We don't see the, the, the injustices in our society. We, we, don't, we don't realize the devastating consequences of sin in this dark and dying world. Because if we did, if we saw what God saw, the way God sees it, we, we would pray. I, I dare say we would pray more deeply than we have ever prayed before. But sometimes, something happens. One of those thin wires snaps, and the bottom drops out. And we find ourselves falling. When a child is born premature, or dies prematurely, our marriage doesn't turn out to be as strong as we thought it was. Or we lose our job, and our savings begin to disappear, and the debts begin to rise, or a loved one is diagnosed with cancer, or heart disease, or mental illness. We're hit hard by life, and we find ourselves falling into trouble. And then, then we do what we should have been doing all along, what we pray. We pray like David prayed. We, we cry out to God with everything that is in us. So the first lesson we're to learn from these very first Psalms is that prayer begins in trouble. And that's all right. That's the way life is. But the second lesson is this, that there's a rhythm to prayer. Or at least there should be. And the rhythm of prayer should actually shape the rhythm of our lives. Now, only what happens daily will ever dominate our lives. Now, I don't remember where I first heard that or who said it, but I have never forgotten it. Only what happens daily will ever dominate our lives. I mean, daily we go to work. 
Daily, we raise our children. Daily, we live with our friends, our husband, our wife. Daily, we spend money. Daily, we eat food. Daily, we read the newspaper. We watch TV. Some of us, daily, we play video games. Daily, we depend on our iPhones. But, but daily, do we commune deeply with the living God? See, in many commentaries and prayer books, Psalm 3 is called a morning prayer. And it's called that because of verse 5. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. And Psalm 4 is often called an evening prayer because of verse 8. I will lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Now, I don't know whether Psalm 3 was written as a morning prayer or Psalm 4 was written as an evening prayer or whether it was just the tradition of the church that used them that way. But what I do know is that Psalm 5 was written as a morning prayer because of verse 3. In the morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before you and eagerly wait. See, turning to God in the first light of the morning and then turning to God as the sun set on the day was the pattern in David's life. Evening, morning, and noon, I cry out to you in distress, and you, God, hear my voice. Psalm 55. And it wasn't just David's prayer life that was patterned this way. I mean, you, you could set your life, by, by the, your clock, by the prayer life of Daniel, who, who in exile would turn toward Jerusalem every day day, in the morning, and at noon, and at night, in the set hours of prayer. And the hours of prayer that converged with the morning and evening sacrifice, they didn't begin with Daniel. Those were practiced for generation after generation, and Daniel in exile was simply continuing that learned behavior. And that practice of morning and evening prayer became the pattern for the New Testament church as well. Because obviously, it grew up out of Jewish Old Testament soil. And then the monastic tradition took that and they expanded it according to the Roman clock. Praying at six in the morning and then at nine and then at noon and then at three and then at six and then again at nine. And since that wasn't enough, they added vigils in the middle of the night. But whether it's the ancient Jewish form or it's the, it's the monastic form, or more recent Anglican or evangelical forms. All the set hours of prayer share something supremely important. See, rather than fitting our prayer life into and around our work life, the hours of prayer teach us to fit our work life into and around our praying. Why? So that we can keep God and communion with God at the very center of our daily experience. Only what happens daily will ever come to dominate our lives. So yes, prayer arises in trouble. Prayer is meant to be urgent, immediate, heartfelt. But we are also to develop the discipline 
the rhythm of prayer. I only pray when I'm in trouble, but I'm in trouble all the time. So I need, we need the discipline, the, the rhythm of turning to God throughout the day, turning from our activities to our God and back to our activities centered on our God in the morning, in the noon, and at night. If we ever hope to actually live in intimate communion with Him. I mean, what kind of friendship, what kind of marriage would it be if we, if we seldom share deeply what's going on in our minds and our hearts? We, we didn't have set times to talk, to go out on dates, to be with each other. How close would we be throughout the day? See, I, I don't know about you, but, but I have trouble keeping my life centered on Christ. I have trouble not overreacting to, to the pressures of life, not worrying, not getting angry, not, not becoming agitated or, or exhausting myself, trying to get everything done. I have trouble knowing what to say in difficult circumstances, what to do, you know, what will, what will be the most help or, or, or what will harm the least. What this person needs right now. I have trouble keeping first things first. Not, not getting distracted by, by the busyness and, and the, the shining lights of the world around me. Making sure that I actually invest my life in that which is most important. Most long-lasting. And, and as a result, I have trouble experiencing the love and the joy and the peace and the patience of Jesus Christ and his spirit. And you know what? If I didn't develop a rhythm of turning to God first thing in the morning and long enough to lay my life out before him, I wouldn't stand a chance of handling all those troubles. And if I don't learn to develop a rhythm of turning from my activities to God throughout the day, how do I become the kind of person God wants me to be? You know, the person who puts his roots down deeply in the soil of God's word and spirit and seeks first the kingdom of God. See, only what happens daily will ever come to dominate our lives. So prayer begins in trouble, but prayer is sustained by a daily rhythm. And I still haven't told you hardly anything about what's actually in Psalms 3, 4, and 5, have I? Well, as we conclude, let me draw your attention to a simple pattern I find in these Psalms, a pattern perhaps that could shape your morning or evening prayers? You see, when David prays, after honestly and urgently crying out to God for help, he usually does three things. And the first thing he does is he reminds himself of who God is. I mean, prayer may begin in trouble, but it's not supposed to end there. I mean, the whole point of prayer, obviously, is to bring our troubles to God, to, to the only one who is wise enough and strong enough and good enough and ever-present enough to help us. Psalm 5, verse 2. 
Listen to my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray, to you I pray. And as David prays, he meditates on God. He thinks out loud based upon the word of God, who God is. He's my king, my sovereign Lord. He's my shield, Psalm 3, verse 3, who always surrounds me. He's the one that's able to protect me from my enemies. He's the one who lifts my head even when I'm forced to leave the city of Jerusalem covered in shame. And look at Psalm 5, verse 4, which comes right after a very clear morning cry for help. You're not a God who takes pleasure in evil. The wicked cannot dwell with you. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. Those who do wrong, those who deceive, those who shed innocent blood. In other words, you are a righteous God. And surely, O Lord, you will bless the righteous, Psalm 5, 12. You will surround them with your shield of favor. See, remembering who God is in the midst of pain is what enables David and us to persevere in faith. It it enables us to hold on when everything in us wants to let go and so many people around us seem to want to knock us down. See, knowing God enables us to know what to say to God, to remind Him of who He is, His character, and what He has said He would do. And if you happen to notice, that brings us back to the Twin Pillars. See, we remind ourselves of who God is by abiding in his word and by bowing to the king and seeking his kingdom. So David, he expresses the pain in his heart. And then David reminds himself of who God is. And the next thing he does is he reminds himself of who he is in relation to God. I mean, I love Psalm 4, verse 3. Know this, that the Lord has set apart the godly person for himself. The Lord will hear when I cry. And by godly, I don't think David means perfect. He means the one upon whom God has set his affection and therefore the one who is faithful to him. The person who can honestly cry out, my king and my God. Or in our case, the one who can honestly pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The one who remembers what Jesus said. Which of you fathers, if your son asks you for a piece of bread, will give him a stone to break his teeth? And which of you, if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion's egg to sting him? Well, if you, who are beset with sin, you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give what is good to the children he loves? Yes, David cries out in pain. And then David reminds himself of who God is. And he reminds himself of his relationship with God. And finally, David rests. 
David rests in God. Psalm, third Psalm, fifth verse. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. Or Psalm 4, 8. I will lie down and sleep in peace, O Lord. For you alone make me dwell in safety. See, David is, is able in these Psalms to work through his honest emotions, to, to pass from fear and anxiety and confusion and distress to peace, even joy. And the sign that he has come to a place of peace is that he can lay down and sleep. And the other sign is that he can sing for joy. Psalm 511, let all who take refuge in you, O God, be glad. Let them, let us ever sing for joy. Let our cries for help become shouts of hallelujah. As we remember who you are, O God, and we remind ourselves of who we are in you. And you know what that is what made David a man after God's own heart. See, David didn't hold back. He, he let God have it all, everything on his heart. He, he cried out to God for help in the midst of life's deepest pains. He sighed and groaned and pleaded and wept because he believed in God that much. But David kept going. He, he, he worked through, he worked his way through his agony and his emotions. He reminded himself of who God is and what God has done and what he's promised to do for us. And he rested in those truths. And he found himself able to sleep at night and to wake up refreshed and then to sing for joy during the day. So how about you? How about me? I mean, are, are we resting in who God is and what he has done? Are we remembering what he has promised to do for us in Jesus Christ? And are there, we therefore ready and able to sing for joy on this Sabbath day? Well, if not, is there a daily, perhaps hourly rhythm in our prayer lives? I mean, if not, how do we expect to experience the joy and the peace and the strength of God? I only pray when I'm in trouble. But I'm in trouble all the time. Let us pray. Oh, Father, teach us to pray, not just to recite words or have our devotions, but actually to enter into communion with you, to cry out honestly, and to search your word deeply until we hear your voice and we're reminded of who you are and who we are in you, until we can rest in you and sing with joy for your kingdom to come 
and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.